Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a true joy. Gideon Rose has been wonderful to stop by on a monthly basis to flog his issue of Foreign Affairs magazine. It's a jewel this month. I hate him because the book's in the back, like including a one volume on Chopin. What is this, a music book? Foreign Affairs, again, does it well with thoughtful reading, including essays by Secretary Pompeo and also by the former Treasury Secretary of the United States, Jacob Lew. We're thrilled that Jack Lew and Gideon Rose could be with us together this morning. Gentlemen, this is just a joy to have you here, particularly with the news flow. I've got to ask you an ugly question I don't want to ask you, but I want to go first to you, Gideon. You've got a beautiful essay in this new issue on authoritarianism in the Middle East. Give us your thoughts on the new Saudi Arabia. Well, so uh, in many respects, this is not exactly uh, shocking. Um, The Saudi regime does not take dissidents lightly and They have uh, gone after their internal critics in many respects in the past. And in fact, many regimes have done this in an unsavory way over the years. When Napoleon did something similar and got criticized for it, his foreign minister, Talleyrand, famously said, it was worse than a crime, it was a blunder, because it made everybody upset. And Mm -hmm. so what the Saudis have done with Khashoggi was not just a crime, but also a blunder, because by doing so, so gratuitously and obviously, they've made everybody upset. And the reality is this crisis will blow over. No one's going to actually break relations with Saudi Arabia over this. And so the question now is not really getting to the bottom of it, but getting past it for the diplomats. And how that happens will be an interesting story about diplomacy. For the diplomats, Mr. Secretary, should Secretary Mnuchin attend this conference in Saudi Arabia? Look, the stories coming out of uh, of Istanbul are nothing short of horrific, and um, the idea that a journalist uh, could be murdered for uh, reporting uh, offends our most basic values. I've made it my business to refrain from publicly advising my successor. I appreciated it when my predecessors offered me private advice. But I can say that when I was secretary and we had to make a decision about whether American business people should attend a conference in Russia, a business conference in Russia, while Russia was occupying Crimea and moving in, uh, in eastern Ukraine, I advised them not to go. All right. But, um, you know, Mr. Jack Lew, how does it affect foreign relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? So away from the, from the conference, which is immediate, which is next week, um, what kind of advice would you have taken on, on the, the next step for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? Look, I think that uh, the, the, the issue is a very serious one. It has to be engaged directly. There's a need uh, to understand in a kind of murky situation what the facts on the ground are. Um, I think it's taken too long to get to a clear explanation of what happened and the swirling stories that we hear only make it worse. Um, uh, the conversations that have been going on between Secretary Pompeo and uh, the, the uh, leaders in uh, Saudi Arabia hopefully will provide uh, some more clear understanding. 
Um, I'm not sure that we'll ever understand exactly what happened. Uh, and there is going to need to be a recognition that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. You know, the United States um, has complicated relationships all over the world. Uh, but it also has a line that it draws in terms of what core values are. And I think that that's, uh, this is a situation that requires uh, an articulation of, of those issues. But should it actually hurt business? Again, this is the, the very complicated question, Mr. Liu, of how to deal with allies that could have you know, questionable morals. So, look, you know, the, the idea of using economic sanctions is actually what I wrote in the current issue of uh, Foreign Affairs about. I believe that using uh, economic uh, power, economic leadership, is an appropriate use of power and a powerful tool. The question is how you do it. Um, you, you, you have uh, the opportunity to inflict pain, but the goal of using economic pressure is not just mm -hmm. to cause pain, it's to change a policy. So you have to articulate what the new policy is, how economic pressure would be used to accomplish that, and you have to do it in a way where the United States uh, hopefully is working as part of the world community. I'm not addressing the facts right here, but as a general model, using right. economic power uh, requires uh, some care and skill. Gideon, I noticed how the secretary diplomatically began his essay with a walkthrough of our history of American sanctions and waited for the crushing criticisms of the Trump administration until the end. Let's bring up the quote right now here from uh, Secretary Liu in Gideon Rose's new Foreign Affairs magazine. The president's administration is behaving as if the United States is immune to consequences. He goes on to say bellicose unilateral actions. And then he shifts. It will fall to Congress, an honest reckoning on the part of U.S. Poly policymakers with the limits of American power. Gideon Rose, can Congress come to a diplomatic rescue, or is that so 19th century? I mean, Congress has lots of power and at some points in the past has played an important role in American foreign policy. They're not really doing so now. I think many of us would like them to do so now. Uh, but can they? Well, it's a quite, they, people in Washington can do anything if they actually choose to. Right now, we seem to be in a sort of partisan right. uh, spitting contest that prevents Congress from playing any kind of significant role in foreign policy or domestic well, policy. Well, I'm going to use the word pragmatic. This is what you do when Jack Lew works with Joe Moakley and Tip O'Neill up in Massachusetts from another time ago. There's got to be a pragmatic view coming out of these midterm elections towards if we're not going to go to multilateral, we're going to go to some new lateral. What would you like to see whatever the form of Congress and Senate is. Look, to be clear, I think the United States should work multilaterally whenever we can, reserving the right to act unilaterally when we need to. The question is, um, do we go around the world as we are right now with our tariffs, acting in a way that violates norms that we helped to define? Do we uh, do things like withdrawing from the Iran deal, leaving all of our allies in Europe, in Japan, with, with countries like China and Russia that cooperated with us, objecting to what we're doing. And that's going to happen in a few days when the new secondary sanctions kick in because the United States withdrew. And does that increase or decrease American influence? The argument that I make in the article is that this is a powerful tool that you need to treat as a tool of some limitation. Where does it come from? It comes from the centrality of the dollar as the world's reserve currency and the primacy of the United States. It's not a good thing when you see countries in Europe working with China to develop 
develop alternative payment systems in order to get mm -hmm. around the dollar. This won't happen overnight. This is not a question of do you turn a switch and do you, does the world move away from the dollar. It's a decades-long process. I think it's profoundly against U.S. national security interests to accelerate that process. And I think the unilateralism, the, the uh, you know, the, 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 I think not careful unilateralism uh, is driving that process to speed up. Reserving the right but to Secretary use power Lou, is different than using it uh, uh, on every issue. Aren't these just acting on campaign promises? A lot of people weren't expecting the president and his administration to follow through, but this is what they promised when the people voted for them. Well, I think that uh, you know, we all uh, have to live and should live with campaign promises because when you're elected, it is a contract with the people. Um, I think how you exercise that power uh, has to reflect the facts on the ground and strategic questions about how do you preserve U.S. influence. I think that diminishing U.S. power over the long term is a very serious consequence, and I think it's something that the American people don't want us to do. Um, these are questions that require careful thought, careful analysis. You know, you, uh, Tom asked, uh, can Congress come to the rescue? Congress is traditionally pushed administrations where administrations have restrained Congress. The idea that that kind of leadership comes from Congress is a bit backwards. We're not seeing the kind of careful leadership that we've seen, frankly, in Republican and Democratic administrations in the past, which does not mean you don't use the levers, but you have to use them carefully. But, but if, you, if what you say is true, Secretary Liu, should the Republican Party not hold the Trump administration to account if, if they're actually diminishing over the longer term the power of the U.S.? Look, I, I, I can't speak for the Republican Party, um, but I know that over my decades in public life, um, there used to be a core in the Republican Party that believed deeply in free trade, that thought that it enhanced American influence and grew the economy. We now see um, a Congress that's willing to step back when uh, an administration puts in place things like steel and aluminum tariffs on our closest allies, which is an attack in some ways on the core principles of the Atlantic oh. Alliance. It, it, it doesn't make sense in terms of our long-term national security. We could keep this discussion going all day. We'll try to do that with Secretary Lou. We welcome all of you on uh, Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide with Jack Lou and Gideon Rose in celebration of a new Foreign Affairs magazine. You have the Secretary of State occupied in Riyadh with your lead article on Iran, and I love his subhead, Iran exposed. But as you listen to Secretary Lou, Gideon Rose, is it America exposed? Is that the real distinction here? I think the challenge is exactly as Secretary Lou was saying, it, that you have to pick your fights. You can't fight with everybody on everything. The United States is far and away the most powerful player in the world, not just in the security, but also mm -hmm. in the economic sphere. We can deploy that leverage for our interests and our values, but we can't do everything. And so you have to pick and choose which fights you want. And the problem with this administration, or one of the problems with this administration, for right. me, is that they keep fighting with everybody, <clears throat> allies and enemies, Iran and China and Russia, and, well, not, not Russia. Russia's the only person they don't fight with, but essentially everybody else. And that diminishes your leverage. And at some point, people wonder, is this guy really somebody we want to play with, or should we just go and organize a game by ourselves without the United States? That's the danger down the road. <clears throat> Within our economics uh, statecraft, uh, Mr. Secretary, is the idea of our new debt and our new deficit. Congressional Budget Office uh, driving forward this convert. Uh, 
conversation, we have a Reinhardt and Reinhardt, not Reinhardt and Rogoff, uh, Carmen Reinhardt, Vincent Reinhardt, writing on where we are 10 years on in this new edition of Foreign Affairs. But it comes down to a debt. Your thoughts on a debt growing easily out over a trillion. And we have one guest who has suggested with economic slowdown, we could begin to look at a crisis near $2 trillion deficit. You know, I, I, I think the growth of the deficit uh, over a period of strong economic growth is very troubling. Usually, uh, you, deficits go up when you're in a recession or when you're in a war. We don't usually drive the deficit out of control when we're in a period of sustained high growth. I have a number of concerns. First of all, our borrowing requirements will keep growing. That means that you know, for all the focus on the trade deficit, when you have a fiscal deficit, you're borrowing money from overseas, you're driving up the trade deficit, that's going to have a powerful negative impact mm -hmm. on our trade balances. Secondly, it has an effect on interest rates. It drives up not just Treasury rates, but all rates in the economy. You know, third, we need to have fiscal capacity when the economy needs it. We're in the 10th year of a recovery. We're not going to grow forever. Whether it's six months, a year, or two right. years from now, we're going to wish we okay. had more fiscal space. Your charm, he has a limited charm, is you worked in the legislative branch for years and then in the executive branch. Many of you won't know that Secretary Lou also served in state for a while. Your charm is you understand the addictions of Washington. Is debt, is a growing deficit, does it become an addictive process for the Beltway? I, I think right now you have an unusual situation. There is no loud chorus for fiscal responsibility. Fiscal conservatives voted for a tax cut that cost $2 trillion over 10 years and blew a hole in any plan for fiscal balance. Progressives are saying, you know, two Democratic administrations in a row were fiscally responsible, and what did they do? They were followed by Republican administrations that spent more than we had on tax cuts. I'm worried that putting together any mm -hmm. coalition to care about fiscal responsibility <clears throat> right. is much harder. Now. And I, I would point out, Francine, that the chair is Gideon Rose is the Peterson, the Pete Peterson chair at the Council on Foreign Relations with his uh, deficit uh, 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 knowledge over the years. Francine? Yeah, I, I like that we talk about charm, Tom, but what I really want to talk about is actually dollar as a reserve currency, um, Secretary Liu. And this is something that you alluded when we started off the conversation. Why, why does it not actually really lose its appeal in, in less than 10 years if the U.S. continues going the way it is? Look, at the moment, I don't see an alternative out there. There were times when people thought that either the euro or the, the yen or the RMB would emerge as a, a near-term alternative. Um, I think if you look over the next five or ten years, it is hard to imagine uh, that it's going to be a process that's that quick. I'm being very careful when I say this is a multi-decade pro process. Um, the, the special position the United States has in the world because the dollar is the world reserve currency is one of the reasons we have the ability to have the deepest and most liquid bond markets in the world. It's, it's the reason we can exercise the sanctions uh, authority that we exercise. It's of enormous consequence to the United States to maintain that. I think if you just turn the speed up on a movement away, it is against the national interest. So I'm not sitting here predicting it's going to be in the next five or ten years. And, and I, I, uh, I think if there were an alternative, I might be in a position where I would be more uh, concerned about it being quicker. I think it's pretty scary if you take what could be a 50-year process and you accelerate it by 10 or 15 or 20 years. But does China want to be that? Does China fill that vacuum? 
I think at the moment, uh, you know, China uh, wants to have it both ways. They want uh, to be uh, taken uh, very seriously as one of the two major economies of the world. They wanted their currency, the RMB, to be accepted by the IMF into the special drawing rights basket. Uh, they don't really want their currency to be fully convertible and subject to all market pressures uh, the way a world reserve currency would have to be. Um, do they want that in the long term? Possibly. What I do think is that right. th there are conversations between Chinese and Europeans mm -hmm. looking at ways to develop alternatives to you know, right. settling in dollars and going through things like SWIFT. What we're going to do is one final question with Secretary Liu, and then we'll move forward with Gideon Rose on Foreign Affairs uh, magazine. Some interesting themes there, particularly on uh, nuclear warfare. Mr. Secretary, your Democratic Party was distracted over the last 24 hours with the DNA out to one one thousandth and 24th of whatever this silly DNA debate is. How does your party get back to Moakley and Tip O'Neill? It's that simple. How do we get back to what you lived a number of decades ago? You know, Tom, I hear a lot of discussion about wh where is the Democratic Party going. Um, I think in a few weeks on Election Day, we're going to see whether or not Democrats win a majority in the House. The arithmetic to me is pretty straightforward. If we win back a majority, it will be because we picked up some centrist seats, some switchovers from Republican mm -hmm. to Democratic seats, and you're going to see a group of new faces, new moderates come to Washington. This is not a moment uh, where I expect a broad bipartisan revival, but I think it's going to be a breath of fresh air if we see some faces that are looking at how do we get things done, how do we solve problems, and that's going to start to become part of the debate about where is the Democratic Party going. Mr. Secretary, congratulations on your article in Foreign Affairs. Thanks Richard for Nephew, uh, This morning. Gideon Rose with us in celebration of a, a new issue of Foreign Affairs magazine. It's got a, a real focus on uh, new thinking about nuclear. But the real headline, Gideon Rose, is you go all cabinet on us with an essay by Secretary of Pompeo, distracted right now in Riyadh, and the attendance this morning of the Secretary of Treasury, Jack Lew, uh, with you as well with Bloomberg um, Surveillance. Let's start with Jack Lew. What did he tell you in Foreign Affairs? Look, I mean, I think that the great... Ability to have wise men and women like that to come in and sort of uh, uh, help us get some perspective on events is really uh, one of the pleasures of the job. Um, so, one of the things that that uh, Secretary Liu is so concerned about is the way that we are abusing the United States is abusing its privileges as the most important dominant nation in the global economy, and the question of we have the leverage to use our financial power to extract things from others, to enforce norms, to uh, uh, get things we want, but we can't do it recklessly. And if we do it too much, then other countries basically start to question whether they want to be part of a system that we are helping to run. And the real question here is the United States has basically engaged in a bargain with the world in which we have our economic power and our security power, and we use it relatively restrainedly on behalf, not just of our own national interests, but of the system stability as a whole. And the question now is, are we actually going to continue that kind of policy or are we going to simply be using our power just for us? And if we do it just for us, at some point will others say, this is not a game we want to keep playing? So let's start with the premise of the piece and we should question it to begin with. Is the United States doing it too much? 
Well, I think so. The answer is, again, yes, because we're picking fights with everybody. It's not so much that you can't have trade disputes with your allies. It's not so much that you can't have trade disputes with China. It's not so much that you can't object to what Russia is doing in here and you can't object to what X is doing there and you should say something about the Saudis. But basically, if every single mode is punitive and you're never cooperating and you're basically trying to punish everybody, you, you rack up a lot of grudging compliance even when you get anything at all you piss people off and that's what we're doing now and the question is how long before people just start to lose faith in american economic leadership of the system as a whole that's the real danger here down the road and secretary pompeo with an essay as well on iran and of course he's speaking the trump doctrine as he calls it well but so this is a great question right so what what, what pompeo wants and it's a legit goal is to use American economic leverage to get, let's say, other countries like the Europeans to put pressure on Iran and to further our goals. That's a legitimate policy. We've tried to do secondary sanctions before. I happen to think it's a dumb policy that doesn't work mm -hmm. well because other countries resist that, as happened in the 90s with Europe on Iran and Libya sanctions. But basically, if you want to do that, then you can't pick fights on something else. And if you want to pick fights on this other thing, you can't do that. You can't fight with everybody all the time. If you do that, your position erodes down the road. And what the administration is uh, has, it's demonstrated its ability to get into fights, and it's even demonstrated its ability to get out of them uh, and settle them and move on. But it hasn't yet demonstrated any ability, as far as I can see, to link its fights together to some broader strategy that moves things forward overall. Well, let's talk about the argument as to whether there is one rule for Iran and another for Saudi Arabia. Does Saudi Arabia get special treatment and why? Uh, because they are the dominant player in the global energy uh, supply markets and uh, that extracts their ability to, uh, th th their, their ability to manipulate uh, oil prices gives them leverage over uh, uh, other countries' policies. Does that enable them to commit humanitarian catastrophes, do things like the allegations that we're seeing in Turkey, murdering journalists? I mean, uh, if you say, does it permit it? In practice, yes. In theory, no. Uh, but I think you will, and my cynical guess is that you're going to see this. Uh, again, people are shocked, shocked to find this happening. Nobody is surprised. Nobody has any illusions about what the Saudi regime is actually like. And if they did, they were uh, they were silly to have done so. Um, yeah, I, I look within the magazine, and, and we don't really have time for it today. Why did you take the nuclear topic on because what uh, annoyed me was the fact that the nuclear issues get brought in as unquestioned game changers in which you say, okay, no matter what we're doing, we, they've, they've moved forward, so obviously mm -hmm. this trumps everything. And it's no longer clear to me that that necessarily should be the case. There are good reasons why you might think that. There are good reasons to be right. upset about hawks, but there are also reasons to worry about whether we're obsessing too much. And there's a wonderful piece by John Mueller that closes by saying, before we get, so, let's at the very least not get into a major war and kill lots of people and do the things for fear of something that might happen that we're not really right. sure about. Gideon Rose, thank you so much. Congratulations. A new issue of Foreign Affairs Magazine. We'll have the conversation with Mr. Rose and Secretary Liu. Uh, we'll do that out on our podcast here. Allison Williams with us. Uh, parsing the details of all these different banks. I'm going to assume, Allison, that this economy is so good, it's really hard not to have a good earnings report, like things are pretty good. So I'm going to go all ratio on you before Farrell beats you over the head with detail. What's return on equity? And what, 
13% number is really good, isn't it? It is really good. And definitely the returns on equity are being boosted by taxes this year. So that's sort of the big up, big How leg up compared with a year ago. How many pop from the gift from the Trump administration? Um, it's a couple hundred to a few hundred, depending on, on, uh, on the banks, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's significant. 200 beeps. Wow. So, Hear that, John? 13% yeah. versus 11%. That's a whole different gloss. And pretty consistent, that is, across the board um, on Wall is, Street right it now. It is consistent across the board. But but keep in mind, that was a lot of this sort of stock run that we had uh, you know, late last year when we got the tax reform. Yeah. It was a lot of the, the initial move up that we had post the election. Banks sort of anticipating a better regulatory environment, anticipating f- fiscal stimulus, anticipating a lot of the help. Uh, that we had this year. Can we talk about the lack of consistency in some of these reports? It's very hard to get a read across from one bank as to what the last quarter did for other banks. Um, debt underwriting, equity underwriting. What's the signal from Goldman this morning, Alison? So I think because this quarter in general is sort of a muted quarter for trading, so there's sort of you know slight puts and takes across those businesses, across companies, for the most part coming in line, maybe one or two surprises. The big surprises that we've gotten are on the investment banking fees, and I think that's because if you look at, again, in a very muted uh, trading environment, we had huge growth in IPOs uh, in the U.S. compared with a year ago, so U.S. IPOs doubling. The global uh, equity, you know, global equity underwriting in general kind of flattish because there were weak, there were weaknesses in an area like Europe. But yeah. IPO is super strong, and that's where you're really seeing the strength, especially um, for companies like Goldman and Morgan Stanley. Well, speaking that are of IPOs, there's, a, there's one IPO that I think everyone would like a slice of. Um, according to the Wall Street Journal, Tom, Uber receiving IPO proposals valuing the company at up to 120 billion dollars. That headline just crossing the Bloomberg. Can you imagine the scramble to get a piece of that IPO, Allison? Oh, I believe we rip up the script at this point wow. with Allison Williams. What's the math on that, Ms. Williams? Not that we'd want to pin you down live on radio worldwide. With <laughs> but all you're of going Global to Wall anyway, Street. Tom. Where, I mean, they're going to go. I'll we, just go with a lot. Oh, okay, a lot is a safe answer. But, you know, an IPO a million years ago used to be a 6% business. I can get any idea they're not going to make, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 billion dollars off of this transaction. But what's it, how do you do that? How do you well, negotiate? Well, I think, you know, and, and just, you know, you're talking about the size of transactions. I think that's what we're seeing really in the noise around the M&A numbers, right? So the M&A numbers are one area that are coming in uh, a little bit all over the place in terms of growth and what's happening. And I think yeah. a lot of that is because given the size of deals, when there's, you know, some closings pushed to the fourth quarter, it can show up in your revenues. We generally do see that at the smaller boutiques. Um, but this quarter, it was it was sort of notable, the difference between announcements and closings. I think it's very interesting at this point of the cycle for these banks to, to work out what they want to be a part of and what they don't want to be a part of. Alison, when you're still getting valuations like this for these kind of companies, it kind of makes you scratch your head. Where are we? Last week, we had a big correction in the equity market. Um, Marcus, a unit at Goldman Sachs, they're worried about meeting their targets for next year and pull back due to credit risk. And then you see headlines like that. Where are we in this whole cycle? So I think there's two, uh, I guess there's two sides of the business, right? There's the traditional lending business, which I think is hitting on all cylinders, just given the fact that we've had the interest rate cycle move up and credit still stable. So um, very profitable on that front. And also the cost cutting efforts coming through, adding to the tax reform, we're hitting ROEs that are at or above targets. And then we have the capital markets business. So again, there's pockets of strength, 
But in the quarter, you know, not especially strong quarter, not especially weak quarter. I think in general, right. investors are still looking at poten- potential upside to the cycle in terms of help from volatility right. and then longer term capital markets. I mean, I want to ask you, like, if I email Juno, which is a New York City Uber equivalent, I get an email back. If I email Lyft, nobody at Uber talks to me. I mean, I've got, it's like. I mean, Pharaoh, you've got so much clout, you can actually talk to Uber. What, what are you trying to talk to Uber can, about? Just, you know, I owe money or they owe me money, whatever. You can't communicate with Uber. Wall Street's got to communicate with Uber. What advice do they give a company that's $120 kajillion, according to the Wall Street Journal? Well, if I if, perhaps if I would have a better question uh, like answer to that, show? if I was the Goldman banker, but I think what's important to know is that the Goldman bankers do have a, a sort of an eye into these clients, right? Sort of the Morgan Stanley bankers, and that's why I think we're going to be listening today to hear what these companies are hearing from their clients. Yes. I mean, be- that is one okay. of the things that we listen and Tom, to. Tom, just to call. point out, according to the reporting by the Wall Street Journal, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley last month, the two banks that um, delivered the valuation proposals to Uber according to the source yeah, of this particular story. Yeah, but is this going to be story. a techie, techie deal where the public has no voting rights, no control, no nothing? There's going to be three sidecard preferred transactions. You know, everybody's going to get rich except the public, and they're going to get foisted on this company at $120 billion. I'm getting silence. See that? <laughs> I mean, it's a tough one to answer. That you 120, know, by the way. Do you know she named her cat Red Herring? Really? Yeah, you know, after, the IPOs of a million years ago. Back when they were in print, John, we called those red herrings. Okay. I, I will. I will say though that um, you know, in terms of you know Goldman and Morgan Stanley, yeah. and you know, you're talking about sort of the performance of the stocks after the fact. I think that is something that they bring to the table. That's something that why people will go to them over time, right, is to find the valuation that makes investors happy, um, but that also um, sort of rewards the people right. that are selling. But do they do roadshows anymore? Do they, you know, is there going to be an Uber roadshow? I think there's always roadshows. There's still roadshows? Road I don't get to I go to them anymore saying. because I'm not an investor you, you anymore. Just don't, you just don't follow it anymore. Oh, come on, you dial up, you dial 1-800-Fidelity, 1-800-PIM. Can we just point out that that 120, according to the Wall Street Journal, that billion, 120 billion. is nearly double- the company's valuation in a fundraising round two months ago. Think about that. A fundraising round held two months ago. The valuation proposal delivered by Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley is double that valuation from two months ago, Tom. And the whole digital dissemination of this. I mean, Allison, they're putting this out on Twitter on WSJ Business is is as well. I'm trying to sign in right now to the... Uh, but I think more importantly, I think more importantly, out. Tom, for many people who have access to public markets, it's very difficult for your average retail investor to get access to private markets. And there has been some real growth opportunities in private markets, which is why private equity have found it so easy to raise as much money as they could possibly want. And why some people also, if there's many people out there that talk about the valuations in private markets, Tom, and maybe they're too frothy, but if you can get a valuation two months ago and then get a proposal for an IPO from two banks for double the valuation from two months ago. And Elsa, does Liz Hoffman, Greg Bensiger, Maureen Farrell state, second paragraph, the combined Uber uh, would be more than the combined General Motors, Ford Motor, and Chrysler. I mean, that's a kind of silliness we're talking about. And I and I think uh, to that point, we've had sort of this early volatility. We've had some price activity, I think, for companies that might have been thinking about doing yeah. deals and going public. Uh, to some extent, you could actually get 
sort of a push, right? So if people are concerned about the market next year, does that pull forward some yeah. window closing? Does that pull forward some That's deals? That's a really good point. And on the, the private equity side, I, I, I would say this as well. So we have seen this huge growth, and I think there is a lot yeah. of talk and there is more effort about trying to get private equity more into retirement accounts, right. sort of broadening. You know, it's, it's good for the managers. It's good for the investors, especially for something that's locked up right. for a long John, time. John, you and Pim are better at this than I am. Is there any indication Uber makes a quarter-to-quarter operating profit? I believe I have not seen it. I have not seen that either. I think cash burn is quarter. You know, I don't, there may be one quarter where they've done well, but Allison, essentially, they're throwing a tenth of a trillion dollar valuation on something that I believe cash burn is a middle name. So I'm a financial analyst, so I cannot relate to tech. <laughs> I can't relate to tech I, valuations I at all. You. And that's why tech-focused financial companies don't want the bank analysts so to I can tell you, I can tell you this. There is already them. some speculation out there. and the, I, I the, won't You'll name, get 10,000 shares? I won't name names. <clears throat> no, that this is well-timed good news for certain investors in Uber. And those certain investors, of course, could well be the Saudis or SoftBank, who have um, a rather large stake in Uber. Um, and this is well-timed good news okay. for those um, those respective entities at this point. Well, there it is. Allison Williams just killing it today, doing Morgan Stanley earnings blind, and then coming in here nailing Goldman Sachs and then vamping on her knowledge of the technology space. This is Bloomberg. Coming to you today from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and we're thrilled to bring in someone that we have known for years, uh, Mohammed El Arian, uh, writing always in uh, Bloomberg Opinion and uh, very visible in terms of synthesizing economics and all. Dr. El Arian, you have a heritage of Egypt, of your father of years ago in, in CFI, Capital Finance Magazine, two years ago. You wrote up the bold vision of Saudi Arabia. Is it shattered right now for Saudi Arabia? And how will the adjacent Middle Eastern nations deal with this latest uproar of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and a disappearing journalist? I think in terms of what other countries are going to do in the region, they're going to wait and see. Saudi Arabia is very important. Um, they're not going to front run the kingdom in any way. So just going to wait and see what comes out of the internal investigation and what the Saudis themselves say. In terms of what it does to the Saudi vision, clearly it's a short-term setback. Long-term, we're yet to see. What I find fascinating, Tom, is the market reaction. Um, today, for example... CDS on, on, on Saudi sovereign is tighter, oil is lower. So the market is basically saying this is a short-term hiccup that's going to be brushed off. And the question is, politically, whether that turns out to be the case or not. So the market's just making the assumption that this doesn't escalate. We saw that in the oil market yesterday, not responding to a not-so-veiled threat that they could use it as a policy tool. That makes me ask a broader question just about complacency in general, Mohammed. So let's talk about the broader question of complacency. Do you see a lot more pockets of that popping up through 2018? I see somewhat less complacency. I think last year was the height of complacency, Jonathan. Um, and that's because markets were very comforted by central banks. The narrative has changed in markets. Central banks are stepping back. Fundamentals are reasserting themselves. It's a messy transition. It's a volatile transition. And there are complicated fundamentals. As the IMF meetings um, told us, this is not about synchronized pickup and growth anymore. This is about divergent growth and all the complications that come with that. So is the reaction function of the Federal Reserve shifted as well? Typically, when we see a route like the one we saw last week, 
Several years ago, the Federal Reserve would have sent someone out and they would have backed away. That didn't happen last week. Yes, not a word. Not a word from any official, neither the board nor from the regional banks. And I think that's important. This is a different Fed. I, I tell my friends, this is a different Fed. This is a Fed that will deliver higher rates than what the market expect. This is a Fed that will keep an eye on the issue of future financial stability. And it's a different paradigm for markets. And I think markets are starting to get it. They're not quite there yet, but they're starting to understand that this is a different Fed. In your classic, when markets collide, back in the back of the book, this ancient tome, it's like out of Game of Thrones, John. It's up there in the temple thing up there, like on 15 stories up. Chapter 8, improved risk management. Have we? Have we actually improved our risk management? You've invented this idea of unknown unknowns. Are we better at our unknown unknowns? So I didn't invent it. Um, we, we're not better at our unknown unknowns. Um, in terms of risk management, where there has been a significant improvement is in the banking system. The banking system in the U.S. has been de-risked. If you're looking for sources of systemic risk, it's yeah. not the banks. But John and I are doing tons of interviews, Mohammed, which make it very clear there's a new shadow banking, and that's what people are talking about. Correct, because what people haven't quite understood is that risk doesn't disappear. It morphs and migrates, and it has migrated to the non-banks. So there's certain segments that I really worry about. I worry about the overpromise of liquidity that's now embedded right. in the system by certain products. John Farrow, John Tucker is a non-bank. Is he? Yes. Are you a non-bank for three <clears throat> children? Uh, yeah, but uh, I have definite systemic risk attached to me. Or so they what say. The kids do? What's a non-bank? A non-bank is a, an institution that is not subject to both the restrictions and the privileges of being very close to the Federal Reserve and being very close to deposit insurance. So where's the leverage right now? What are the pockets of fixed income that you're worried about? So I worry about the lower quality segments. I worry about segments of high yield. I worry about emerging market corporates. I think there's been an overpromise of liquidity there. When you see the proliferation of ETFs in inherently illiquid asset class, worry. Because what does an ETF signal to the consumer? Instantaneous liquidity at reasonable bid-offer spreads. If the underlying asset class is illiquid, that is a silly promise to make. And yet it's been made because the market has gone that way. So what did you make of last week when we have a significant drawdown in risk assets like equities, but then we see leverage loans looking really solid. And yes, we see a bit of spread widening and high yield, but there's been some outperformance there through 18. So what do you make of that? Equities get hit, but things like leverage loans look rock solid, Mohammed. Why? Yeah, it's unusual. Normally it's the bond market that leads the way and then the equity markets follow. But as you point out, Jonathan, correctly, corporates in particular have been relatively stable. Um, I think part mm. of that is because people have been reassured and conditioned over and over again to fade every sell-off um, in markets. And I think that is very deep conditioning after years and years and years of exceptional support from central banks. Mohamed Alaron, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, um, joining us here in New York City without the New York Jets jacket. Um, this morning, he, and we're, we're a little bit disappointed. Yeah, by that I just expected that he would show up with the New York. They play the Vikings next, which is like a layup win right there. There's no such thing as a layup win <laughs> for, for the New York Jets. Jets. <laughs> <laughs> Mohammed El Arian with us, who is so visible that I think too many people forget the first principal skills of Dr. El Arian, which is out of the game theoretic. Uh, knowledge base of the British schools of Oxford and of his Cambridge is well, Dr. Larian, and this goes to your books, The Unknown Unknown and the T Decision and that, 
John von Neumann, who, who sort of codified this, if you will, uh, in World War II, had a great idea about zero-sum games, and that was just the basic idea, how can I maximize my rewards in this sort of game? In a President Trump era, in the neo-mercantilist world that we're in right now, how can President Trump maximize his rewards? So I think what President Trump is doing is approaching an inherently cooperative game, trade, uncooperatively in order for the other side to correct what right. he regards as long-standing deficiencies. And that is quite a change from what we've had in the past. The distinction, and this goes back to Avinash Dixit of Princeton and his Art of Strategy classic book, the distinction, and you just nailed it, the perception that the other side is one side and is not multilateral and numerous, isn't it? It is. You know, Tom, what he's done is he's taken it sequentially. So everybody in the beginning said, you know what, if you're going to take on China, let's confront China with one side. And he did something very different. High, high risk, but it turns out to be a strategy that, that is working. He said, let's take them sequentially. So he, he first agreed with Korea, then Mexico, then Canada, the EU is next, and then he will confront China. So his idea of trade is very different from what we've seen in the past. And it turns out, just like Reagan realized this in the 80s, that if you're willing to underwrite the cost and risks of an uncooperative strategy, there are benefits, but the equation is a very delicate one. So Mohammed, let's talk about potential outcomes. What are the potential outcomes at the moment for you? So a lot depends on how long it takes the Chinese to realize that at the end of the day, they will have to make concessions. If it takes them a short, term, short while, then we will get concessions on A, joint venture requirements, B, intellectual property transfers, and C, the deficit. If we don't, Jonathan, and this is really important, then what is today's trade issue becomes a national security issue. And the more it migrates into national security space, the harder it will be to diffuse these tensions. Some people might say we're already there, Mohammed. I think we're getting there, and I understand those who feel that we're already there. I don't think we're quite there yet. A lot will depend on what the Chinese decide to do over the next few weeks, not months, weeks. Yeah, I hear you talk about trade, and I have to say you come on the more optimistic side of the debate. Um, you think there is a real chance, and you can talk, about, talk to me about what probability you allocate to it, but you think there is a real chance of having what you've described as a Reagan moment. What's a Reagan moment, and what's the chance of it actually happening? So a Reagan moment is an event that changes the landscape in, in a permanent way and in a way that's beneficial to the U.S. That is what Reagan did in the 80s with the Soviet Union. He completely changed the geopolitical landscape. My probabilities, Jonathan, are 25% we end up in a very damaging trade war, 60% that we end up with the same outcome with China as we've had with Korea, Mexico, Canada, which is tweaks but nothing revolutionary, and a 15% probability that we end up with the Reagan moment. So that's how I see the probabilities. But as I say, the longer this goes on, the more worried I will be about the 25% going higher. What's the market position for? I think the market's position for what it has seen, which is that we get tweaks at the end of the day. This is not a trade mm -hmm. war. This is a skirmish, and that it will be solved because, after all, 
which countries would voluntarily go into a global trade war. That's how democracy. How do thinking. you respond to the gloom crew? Friday afternoon, uh, all the articles come out. World's coming to an end. This, that. There's what, John? Twenty-seven themes. I mean, look last at the, Friday. Look at the Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey that came out this morning. The most okay. bearish on the global outlook. How since do you 08. respond to that? So, so, and yet your Bloomberg survey that came out yesterday on emerging markets suggested a majority of people feel like it's time to fade mm. the divergence trade, which I find, which I find interesting. Um, the way I respond to that is very right. simply to say differentiate between baselines and risk scenarios. Okay. Right. And make a difference. And I, your risk scenarios are there, but let's not forget the baseline. And, and that's how I do it. Right. But this is, this is a more fluid, and to use Ben Bernanke's term, right. unusually uncertain time than we've seen for a long time. I've got a minute and a half left with you, and then you're going to go off to one of John Farrow's other properties, which I fully understand. You managed money for a small school up on the Charles River. In, in Massachusetts a few years ago. I was flabbergasted by a Yale University article the other day on use of alternative investments. Are they done? Are we done with relatively illiquid alternative investments? Is everybody going back to block and tackle endowment investing? Or are, is there still going to be a place for alternatives? Oh, there'll definitely be a place for alternatives. I mean, in, in, a, in a period where there's ample liquidity, then giving up liquidity is not something that you get rewarded for. And that's why we have seen a general tone change against right. that. But we are, we are exiting that regime. And I think that endowments have to remember that their edge right. is their quasi-permanent right. capital. And that's a really right. important. You, don't, you know this, right. Tom. You know this, Jonathan. You don't get involved in the investment world if you don't know what your edge right. is. John has his entourage here. Two of them will help you get out of your chair. And the other two will help John get have out you, of his chair. Have you chair noticed how much smaller my entourage is compared to yours? Well, yeah, but I got vet bill, <laughs> you know. That's Someone's got to look after it. your dog. Got that right. We have a two, oh, two, two people look after that vet bill. Mohamed Alarian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.